James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. We've pointed out from the beginning of this series of sermons that James is a book of wisdom. And we have taken pains to define that term in a way that is faithful to its particular and peculiar, its unique use in the Bible. In the first few verses, or the very few verses we are to read this evening, James does that in effect for us himself. He gives us, as it were, his own definition of the term, both positively and negatively, illustrating true wisdom and at the same time distinguishing a biblical understanding of wisdom from its worldly counterfeit. In effect, James does just what Proverbs does. He doesn't give us what we nowadays think of as a definition. There are very few such definitions in the Bible. One of the reasons we need theologians. They distill the biblical material into definitions. But he gives us examples of the thing. And as in Proverbs, we are also given examples of foolishness. So we learn what wisdom is and we learn what wisdom is not. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, the Greek word translated understanding is a word that suggests something like our modern word expertise, almost professional knowledge. That sort of knowledge is very often precisely what true wisdom is not. There are a lot of so-called experts in our culture nowadays chatting away all the time, pontificating all the time. Experts who utterly lack what the Bible means by wisdom. I remember Paul Johnson's remark about Bertrand Russell, the 20th century British philosopher, mathematician, and social and political gadfly, to the effect that no one could possibly doubt that Russell had a powerful brain. But nobody in his senses would go to the man for advice about anything important. Our world is full of so-called experts who lack wisdom. Russell himself felt free to give advice to everyone all the time. Prime ministers, presidents, premiers, and the general public. He had immense confidence in his intellectual superiority and felt it only his duty to share his wisdom with everybody else, to tell them how they ought to live. There is little of the meekness of wisdom to be found in the life of Bertrand Russell. He was, by everybody's account, an exceptionally vain man. James says the proof of wisdom is in the pudding. Does it translate into a good life for that person himself? Ask Russell's many wives and mistresses and his three children if his expertise did that. He was a philanderer of the first order and by everyone's account, 
unusually preoccupied with himself. James said in chapter 2, verse 18, that we are to show our faith by our works. Well, in a similar way, we are to show our wisdom by our works. Real wisdom will invariably demonstrate itself in the push and the pull of life. In the Bible, nothing counts as knowledge until it is put into action and results in real goodness of life. Nothing is really known until it reshapes one's life. The Bible doesn't say that Adam knew his wife Eve through any prudishness about sex. It's not a polite reticence that explains that way of speaking. It is the deep understanding of knowledge or wisdom that you have in the Bible. A marriage is a profound illustration of real knowledge because it is knowledge that results in a deep, an intimate, a fruitful relationship between persons. But take James' main point as we begin. The purpose of wisdom is not to tell others how to live their lives. It is living a truly good life oneself. And nothing is more fundamental to that life than meekness or humility, which is why James begins there. Real wisdom will always make a person humble and make a person meek as well. Meekness has been defined as self-subduing gentleness, both Godward and manward. A person might be humble before God, but to be meek in the biblical usage of the term, you have to have a relationship with other people. As one commentator put it, alone, Robinson Crusoe might have had to shun pride. Once Friday came along, the scene was set for the practice of meekness. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Bertrand Russell, for example, I don't know why I'm picking on Russell this evening, but he had a nose for what he judged to be dishonesty or injustice. But when aroused, as he often was, by some social or political issue, his respect for accuracy simply collapsed. Being faithful to the truth was not one of his strong suits. When called on to account for views he had since changed, he very often simply lied that he ever held those views in the first place. When his previous published statements were quoted to him, he would change his tact and lie again in a different way. And his remarks about this person or that person, this issue or that issue, were obviously the result of very superficial thought, usually utterly one-sided, often patronizing, not infrequently cruel. Read enough about Russell and you can't help asking yourself how someone so smart could regularly have been so stupid. The story of our world. People who are wise in the worldly sense are usually characterized by ambition, 
and by a corresponding indifference to peace and harmony and unity, traits that are the very opposite of humility and meekness. Or rather, that indifference is the very opposite. Those people divide because they wish to lead. And in order to lead, they need people to defer to them. They need a party, their party. And so the first casualty of pride and contention is the truth. Real honesty is the trait of the humble. And it rarely serves those who wish to be great among men. This is, as we know, the bane of our politics. But it's usually the bane of a great deal else in our social life as well. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Compare James' description of false wisdom as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic to the traditional triad of the enemies of the Christian soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So James justifies the harsh verdict he has pronounced on false wisdom by describing its sinister effects in human life. And of course, we have the demonstration of this everywhere we look, every day. We are a clever generation. Our scientific and technological advances are breathtaking. But we are at the same time living in a world as fully disordered, as full of division and hatred, as genuinely threatened by all manner of catastrophe and every single kind of evil as the world has always been. Being smart has never fixed any of man's spiritual and moral problems, and it isn't fixing them today. In any case, don't miss the point. Jealousy and selfish ambition are the opposite of meekness, so they can't have anything to do with real wisdom. The history of the church, alas, would read very differently if God's people had really appreciated how contrary to true wisdom, division, and discord, jealousy and ambition actually are. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, by purity, we tend to think nowadays of sexual fidelity or chastity. But the idea of the word that James uses here, translated purity, is much broader than that. It refers to moral innocence of every kind, of moral blamelessness. Some commentators think that it comes first because it is intended to serve as a title for what follows. That is, apparently the terms that follow are all dimensions of this innocence or this purity. Now, interestingly, in this particular depiction of the Christian character, James doesn't tell us anything that we actually are supposed to do, though he certainly has done that elsewhere in his letter. He offers us an ethic, an ethic not of verbs, do this, do that, not of nouns, 
naming this or that item of good conduct, but of adverbs about the sort of people we are to be, whatever it is we are doing. And James certainly practiced what he preached. The James we encounter in Acts 15 when the church was threatened with division over the question of Gentile circumcision. Again, in Acts 21, when the Apostle Paul came back from his third missionary journey, under a cloud of suspicion, at least in the case of some Christians in Jerusalem, James was ever the peacemaker, gentle, reasonable, impartial, open to reason. Open to reason doesn't mean easily persuaded, as if the person were a dupe. It means always ready to be persuaded. That is, open to the truth and averse to a party spirit that closes the mind to opposite points of view. He or she is not the sort of person who, or is the sort of person who remembers that you don't have the whole story until you've heard both sides. And who knows how readily people tend to put the worst construction on someone else's viewpoint rather than the best. Now, don't try to do too much with this particular list of the virtues of true wisdom that we have here, as if James wanted to mention just these, thinking that these and these alone define the grace of biblical wisdom. We don't need to assume that James was indifferent to a host of other matters that are brought up in Proverbs, but are not mentioned here as the ingredients of true wisdom. He's making a general point, and seven items was sufficient to make it. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There are questions about how precisely to read verse 18, but the general gist is clear. True wisdom leads to a genuinely godly, holy, and righteous life. A person who is peaceable and gentle, for example, will be righteous in other ways, and his life and his words will encourage righteousness in others. And so a person full of mercy, a person open to reason, a person who is impartial and sincere. Now what is a good life? If you observe American culture, listen to its media, watch its people, take note of their enthusiasms, their interests, their commitments, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, what they seem most to want, you would naturally conclude that a good life in the American mind is a comfortable existence, successful full of fun and pleasure, and largely unperturbed by difficulty. American advertising has succeeded in convincing many Americans, most Americans, I think, to a very great degree, that a good life is marked by the possession of the right sort of things, the right sort of clothes, the right sort of cars, the right sort of houses or vacations or the right sort of figure, or whatever. American media, in general, echoes the same theme, and frankly, so does American politics, sports, and entertainment, 
all of which the American public consumes in vast quantities. Of course, we wouldn't say any of this out loud, that the good life is the life that money can buy. We would pay our respects to the time-honored adages that money can't buy happiness and that the only good life is a life lived for others. But the fact is, you'd never think that observing American culture. The fact is, and it's obvious to anyone with a pair of eyes, that Americans will make virtually any sacrifice, including the welfare of others, including even the welfare of their own children, to obtain the comfort and the pleasure and the success and the sense of well-being they have been taught is the definition of a good life. And when the only life anyone seems to care about is the life of this world, temporary as it is, there is still less reason to make sacrifices to obtain what one cannot taste or smell or touch or see. I remember my son-in-law telling me of some professors, of his professors in the school where he earned his Ph.D., a married couple with a child, both college professors, who were irritated because the government wasn't doing enough to make it easier for them to get on with their careers while still raising a child. They were put out that parenthood was interfering with their commitments. Why is abortion the law of the land? Because our understanding of the good life requires that we be not encumbered with the consequences of some of the choices that we make. It's absolutely true that God has promised his people life prosperity. He has taught us many times in many ways that those who are faithful to him, who make sacrifices for his kingdom, who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness will be rewarded for that commitment in many different ways. What the Lord has never promised his people is lifestyle prosperity. What many confused Christians nowadays seem to think is precisely what he promised them. The question with which James begins, verse 13, suggests that even Christians can have a problem identifying the good life, identifying real wisdom, identifying what constitutes that instrument by which the good life is obtained. We too are tempted to think such things are one thing when in fact they are actually something else altogether. And so we're tempted to want one kind of wisdom when what we actually need is another very different kind. There are two words for good in the Greek New Testament. One, agathos, refers to the nature of something. That thing so described is good as opposed to bad. In that sense, for example, it's used in the Lord's famous statement that only God is good, agathos. The other word, also translated good in English Bibles, is the word kalos, which refers to the beauty of goodness, its attractiveness, its wholesomeness, its helpfulness, its usefulness, fruitfulness. 
It's this second word, kalos, that James uses here. The good life. So we can put the same question in this way. What is the pretty life, the beautiful life, the wholesome life, the effective life? We hear nowadays all the time about the beautiful people. And sure as shooting, the phrase doesn't mean people who are beautiful on the inside. Beautiful in their character, beautiful in their behavior. Beautiful, as it is used in our culture, refers to the physically handsome, the rich, the successful people, the people everyone else envies, at least until their lives fall apart in some way. The Greco-Roman idea of wisdom was intellectual ability and the knowledge of divine secrets, the higher principles of life. In neither case was a person's wisdom judged by whether or not he or she lived a moral life. Indeed, a wise man in the Greco-Roman conception might very well live a highly immoral life. What is more... Meekness in that same culture was actually a pejorative term, a vice, not a virtue. It was associated with groveling, with moral and spiritual weakness, the false humility of a Uriah Heep, who you remember from Dickens' David Copperfield was always running himself down before others, had a spirit of a nobody, of a useless, worthless human being. Meekness in James' day in the Greco-Roman world was linked with adjectives such as ignoble and abject and servile. In fact, Epictetus, a Greek Stoic philosopher and moralist, largely a contemporary of James, he lived in the first and the second centuries of the Christian era, put meekness first in his list of moral faults. Well, meekness isn't much admired in 21st century America America either. What well-known figure, public figure, in our culture today can you think of who is known for his meekness, his gentleness, his peaceableness, his great capacity for mercy. The purpose of wisdom, according to the Word of God, is in Derek Kidner's delightfully artless and suggestive words, to make good people nice. Wisdom operates in the realm of daily personal life but in matters smaller than the Ten Commandments. Wisdom concerns itself with what a person is like to live with or to employ, how a person manages his or her affairs, time, money, emotions, and so on. Does a person talk too much, work too little, like money more than he or she should, jump to conclusions too easily, have too quick a temper, like to argue, make foolish decisions about this or that, and so on. In the Bible, 
All such questions about the daily life of people are answered in terms of whether or not the person is wise. Anyone can see that such issues have an immense influence on the goodness, the fruitfulness, the happiness of a person's life and of the lives of people who live with or who live near or who are in some significant way affected by such a person. Think of a person without the qualities James mentions in verse 17, and it's hard to imagine him producing a harvest of righteousness. It's hard to imagine him even being liked by very many people, much less having a positive influence on the lives of others. Now, it will not have escaped your notice that not much is said in these verses about God or about Christ or about the Holy Spirit or about the forgiveness of sins or about the love of God. That's also true of the book of Proverbs, of which we have said it is the book in the Old Testament, most like the book of James in the New. There's nothing in Proverbs about the Exodus, the great redemption of God's people, or about the Passover. There's nothing in Proverbs about the saving grace of God. But remember, just as in Proverbs we read at the outset of the book that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and just as in Proverbs it is the Lord's covenant name, Yahweh, that is used throughout the book, so James has said enough to remind us that what he is describing is a Christian life. He's assuming many things while talking about what we have called the finer points of a Christian character and of a Christian way of life. But James certainly expects his readers to understand that only the Christian can be wise in this way. Only the Christian can be understanding in this important sense, because only the Christian knows God and has, by God's grace, the capacity to live a genuinely humble and genuinely righteous life. But James is here like Proverbs in still another way. In Proverbs, there's no mention of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, or the major obligations of Christian obedience. And here in these verses about wisdom, James doesn't talk about adultery or about theft, or about idolatry, or even about disrespect for one's parents. The ingredients of wisdom are finer than that. You won't find among the Ten Commandments, or even in the myriad of laws that expound and apply those commandments, a command to be gentle, or a command to be open to, be reason, uh, to reason, or to be careful not to jump to conclusions, or to be slow to speak. There's no opposition between the law of God and true wisdom, but they address different aspects of our lives, different measures or levels or dimensions of our goodness or our righteousness or our responsibility to live to the glory of God. Let me give you some examples that I hope will see, help you see what James is getting at, at what true wisdom actually is, how it works and why it works, why it makes such a great difference. 
It'll make the whole matter clearer if we realize that some immensely important failures of our cultural life and of our church life are actually failures of wisdom, not really so clearly failures of the law, or at least not first failures of the law. Take as a first example the unwed mother and the child born out of wedlock. When I was in high school, we never saw a pregnant high school girl. And in those days, before Roe versus Wade, she was much more likely to be and remain pregnant if she conceived a child with her boyfriend. It didn't happen very often in those days. Out-of-wedlock births were genuinely uncommon. I don't remember such a pregnancy ever happening to anyone I knew. And I attended a very large public high school in suburban St. Louis. But when such a thing did happen, the girls stopped coming to school until the child was born. There were features of our practice in those days that were very, very different from what you young people now consider commonplace in this day. However, some of what was commonly done in those days, the days of my youth, was deplorable. Even as late as my teenage years, children born out of wedlock were regularly referred to as bastards. No Christian can think that terminology acceptable or that it would be somehow proper or loving or helpful to blame or demean a child for the sins of his parents or load him down with a burden that is going to be difficult for him to bear for the rest of his life. Girls who got pregnant were called sluts. Whether or not this was the only time she had ever had sex, whether or not she had been pressured into it, whether or not her family culture had prepared her for this dimension of life, and so on. There was never, as there is not today, a corresponding term commonly used for the boyfriend. The double standard was firmly in place. The pregnant girl got condemnation from her community, but not much else. It was better in the church to be sure, but sometimes, alas, not terribly much better. Our practice was by no means gentle or full of mercy. But now, in part because we have turned our backs on moral condemnation, our entire culture has turned its back on moral condemnation, on shame as the proper response to sin, especially in matters of sexual freedom, we have turned our back on moral condemnation. We have an epidemic of children born out of wedlock. Now some 40%, almost half, of all the children born in the United States of America 
and 70%, and actually somewhat more, of African-American children. We may have grown used to these numbers, but they are both utterly unprecedented in the history of the world and a recipe for social catastrophe. There is nothing good about this development. It is calamitous for children. Virtually everyone knows, including a great many people in the high culture who have no intention whatsoever of doing anything at all about this problem. Everyone knows that to be born without a father and a mother together in the home makes much more probable a cascade of sinister results in a person's life. Results that upon the child reaching child, uh, adulthood have immense and usually adverse social consequences as well. That is to say, consequences for all of us. The lack of condemnation, the refusal to assign moral responsibility for out-of-wedlock births, has predictably profoundly altered the ethics of conceiving children in our culture. And not for the better. Horribly for the worse. So the challenge should be obvious to our culture and to us in the church. How do we as a people both forgive and encourage the young mother expect responsibility of the young father and welcome the baby with the same love and provision with which we would welcome any other child. And at the same time, maintain a vigorous, public, unforgiving, unmistakable opposition to the conceiving of children out of wedlock. The law of God, and for that matter the welfare of human beings, both require chastity and both forbid promiscuity. But what are we to do with the promiscuous? Especially the promiscuous who have conceived children. That's not really a law question. That's a wisdom question. A variety of obligations have to be met at the same time and have to be met furiously at the same time. The answer is we have to be several things at once. We have to be both pure and morally innocent and gentle and full of mercy. We have to set an example of the bearing of good fruits there should be for all of our children growing up in the church an unquestioned and unquestionable expectation that sex and children are for marriage alone. That was generally the position of our culture until very, very recently. An expectation founded upon what children see everywhere around them as they are growing up. At one and the same time, we have to be honest and candid with our children about the consequences of sin for themselves and for others. And there must be no question that we love them and will love them through thick and thin. 
We need large measures of truth and gentleness, of purity and mercy. Faithful Christians through the ages have proved what a difference it makes when wisdom is holding the reins in the life of the church and its people. Or consider another case, that of controversy. A lot of harm has been done over these last several years in conservative American Presbyterian churches because of the way in which we have disagreed with one another. Not that we have disagreed with one another, but the way in which we have disagreed. What is for some men an interesting but not terribly important difference of opinion about the right way to define the details of a particular doctrine or about the interpretation of a particular biblical text is for other men a fatal heresy. Remember, I'm talking about men who share a commitment to the inerrancy of the Bible, to the theology of the early Christian creeds and the Protestant Reformation, Men who on both sides identify themselves as reformed evangelicals and have ex anima, or from the heart, sworn their allegiance to the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're talking about differences of opinion between these men. There were angry glances and angry words, but precious little peaceableness or meekness or gentleness or being open to reason. Proof of that is that hardly anyone ever changed his opinion once he had stated it. As, a, as the result, for example, as you might have expected a man to change his opinion, as a result of another man clarifying his views or explaining that the criticism he had received had suggested to him that he had been misunderstood. A man whose views were in question might even admit that some of his words being open to misunderstanding need to be withdrawn. He might explain in greater detail what he meant by what he said and particularly what he did not mean. But he might as well have kept silent for any good that it did. Again, this is not an issue of law. It's an issue of wisdom. How do we handle our disagreements with one another in the church? After all, there have always been, there will always be such disagreements. And the Bible bears its own witness to how much damage to the church's unity and witness is done when our disagreements are not managed in a wise and gentle and loving way. Do you realize, until 1529, there was the promise that the Reformation would produce one grand Protestant church. It's a terrible story to read about how it was fractured into a hundred different pieces. The Great Awakening in the 18th century broke apart through quarreling. It was precisely the importance of the church's unity for the church's ministry that prompted the Lord Jesus to pray his so-called high priestly prayer, the prayer we have in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. How do we measure what is genuinely a threat 
to the gospel? And what is one of those differences of opinion of which there have always been a number, even among men who believe almost the same thing about almost everything the Bible teaches? Well, meekness is a start. A watching our hearts, lest there be in them some jealousy, some selfish ambition motivating us. Then a concern to be open to reason, to be gentle with others, to be peaceable. Those things would probably do the trick in most cases, don't you think? Obviously, there were disputes among the Christians to whom James was writing, as will be made even clearer in the next chapter. But James doesn't seem to think that these were usually the result of faithful men standing up for truth and righteousness. Some disputes undoubtedly are of that sort. But James saw them as the fruit of selfish passions and especially of covetousness, as we will uh, read in the opening verses of chapter 4. So much harm has been done to the church, to the people of God, more sadly to the influence of the gospel in the world because of our tendency to quarrel with one another. Wisdom is the antidote, James says, and it's the only antidote. That skillful navigation of differences that both discerns the difference between harmless or less important differences of opinion on the one hand and killing errors on the other and wisdom that can then with gentleness and peaceableness preserve Christian love and harmony even when brothers don't see eye to eye. Or consider one last example the importance of wisdom to an authentic and fruitful Christian life in the area of sexual temptation. I'm going to be speaking about this the next three Sunday evenings in a series of sermons introducing our new Genesis 39 ministry. But for now, let me simply say that much of what we will talk, be talking about in the months and indeed in the years to come concerns wisdom the sort of wisdom that James is talking about here. He doesn't focus on that wisdom that applies directly to the sexual life, but he might have just as well. Sexual promiscuity is sinful. God's law condemns it. The Lord in his Sermon on the Mount, which is an exposition of God's law, made clearer still that one could not even indulge promiscuity as a mental exercise and remain free of sexual sin. But other things are likewise clear. We have been created with very powerful sexual urges. They require a great deal of control. No formula or technique so far invented or recommended by Christian moralists through the ages has proved sufficient to solve the problem of lust and sinful sexual desire. Certain expedients that in their time proved genuinely helpful seem no longer to be possible. Single sex, high school and college education, for example. In the autobiography of John Wenham, I read recently, he recalled that in his college days, all the students at his Cambridge University college were men. There were 
two colleges in the university that women attended, but they were colleges for women only. At the intervarsity meetings, the women who belonged to the Christian Union at Cambridge would bring their friends, their women friends, as the men did. But the women would sit in pews reserved for them. This was the 1930s. He says there was virtually no mixing of the sexes at Cambridge University in the 1930s. He writes, Incredible though it may sound today, this was to us one way of seeking first the kingdom of God. And God wonderfully added the blessing of happy marriages to nearly all of us. Some 60 of us graduated from Cambridge, that's 60 Christian men from the Christian Union, the various colleges of all of them attending various colleges of Cambridge University. Some 60 of us graduated from Cambridge in 1934, and we kept in touch with each other by six monthly duplicated letters thereafter. And in spite of prudish upbringings and lack of sexual knowledge, not a single one of our first marriages went wrong. Well, the law of God does not command us to sit the men and the women in separate pews. Jesus himself had private conversations with women even about their sex life. As, for example, the woman at the well in Samaria. What is more, as John Wenham also observes, there's no getting around the fact that men find women a pleasure to look at. For that matter, the Bible itself often draws attention to a particular woman's physical attractiveness, speaking of a number of different women in its pages as beautiful in form and figure or beautiful to look at. Think of Rebecca or Esther, for example. The law of God doesn't forbid men to look at women, only to lust after them, that is to imagine them as sexual objects or partners. It's in that small distance that separates the admiration of a woman's physical appearance and pleasure in the sight of her from lusting after her that one finds biblical wisdom at work. In the old days, it operated in certain ways, acceptable not simply to the church but to the culture. What are those ways in our day? James does not here mention that particular piece of biblical wisdom, that particular sort of savoir-faire, that adroit managing of temptation that is also a chief part of wisdom. He's talking about precisely that sort of expertise, however. He's just talking about different dimensions of it. Most Christian men know very well what is right and what is wrong in the sexual dimension of life, what they either do not know or are not as yet sufficiently committed to acquiring is the Christian wisdom by which one manages this dimension of life in a God-honoring and soul-nourishing way. It's a major theme in Proverbs. So let me say in conclusion, what James is telling us is simply this. It's not enough to
to stop with the law of God. If one is to live a truly godly life, a life of genuine spiritual fruitfulness, he or she absolutely has to become wise. You you have to learn the skills. You have to put on the virtues that make possible a life that is actually successful in the pursuit of holiness, a life that is actually attractive to others, Christians and non-Christians alike, a life that for its goodness, its humility, and for all the righteousness that comes because this person has learned to navigate the temptations of this world with art and with skill. A life that is a recommendation of the gospel and the law of God to both those in the church and those outside of her. That's how important wisdom is. And that is what wisdom is. Amen.